This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good evening and welcome to Plato's Cave, a RRR film criticism show. A big thank you to Phoebe Squared for the past three hours of most excellent music on maps. He will be back next Monday at 4pm to do it all again, but you're listening to Film Criticism at the moment. My name is Thomas Caldwell. I'm joined by Josh Nelson and Alexandra Heller. Nicholas, good evening to you both. Hello. Good evening. Now, on tonight's show, we'll be discussing Louis Thoreau's feature documentary, My Scientology Movie. My Scientology Movie, rather. And the just went a bit plantarium on that one. <laughs> Got a bit strange quite early this week. Just, yeah, we'll, just, just start, we'll just start going silent on whole syllables. We'll also be looking at the feature animation The Secret Life of Pets. Uh, this is by the creative team behind the Despicable Me films. But first... Blood Father is the first film in four years to feature Mel Gibson in a starring role. Set throughout the Southern Californian desert near the Mexican border, Gibson plays an ex-con and recovering alcoholic who lives in a trailer park making ends meet as a tattoo artist. After being reunited with his estranged daughter, whom he had been searching for, he breaks his parole to go on the run with her to protect her from ruthless gang members who aren't happy with how she parted company with them. Bloodfather is directed by the French director Jean-Francois Richet, who did the 2005 remake of Assault on Precinct 13 and the two 2008 Mezrine films, which starred Vincent Cassel as the infamous French criminal Jacques Mezrine. Bloodfather is adapted from a 2005 novel by Peter Craig, who did the adaptation himself and whose other screenplay work includes writing The Town and the final two Hunger Game films. So, did we enjoy this slice of B-grade pulpiness? Before we get started, I just have to say, even though I think I don't like Mel Gibson, I don't know if there's anything that makes me more instantly patriotic than the sight of that man on a highway wreaking vengeance with a gun. Like, I just, I didn't feel it, and then it's like, oh, look, I'm feeling it. It's just, there's something so, it's, I I don't know what it is, it's like Mel Gibson on on a highway going apeshit. Mad Mel. It's I'm, always Mad I, Mel. This is, my, this is my spiritual home. Yeah. <laughs> like, There's I just even a scene in this film away. where a guy on a motorbike goes under a truck uh-huh. that looks like it yeah. uh-huh. looks like a homage to Mad <laughs> yeah. Mel. Yeah. Um, I, think, I, I think, didn't expect that moment. I didn't expect that little Mad Max Patriot <laughs> moment to come through yeah. watching this film. Both my partner and I turned to each other at, like, that, oh, at that point. And it's said, Max. That was a Mad Max reference, wasn't it? <laughs> yes. <Yeah. laughs> I think he's the reason to see this film. And I think he's the, really the, the only reason. Let's just cut to the chase. Let's get past the foreplay. I think he's the only reason to, to see this film. But he is... You know, it's a strange thing watching a film where the lead actor is so charismatic and you know, it, transcending what I thought was a pretty average script. But he's magnetic on screen and it makes you forget even momentarily at least this is my experience of it his whatever your opinion is of mel gibson off screen and you just are drawn into this grizzled this wonderful grizzled male kind of aging character and it's written in the skin it's written in those kind of wrinkles and it's so rare to see a a leading man who looks like mel gibson looks now i mean you think about most of the action hero contemporaries of stallone and schwarzenegger their faces are noticeably different and have been kind of maintained potentially through various cosmetic procedures they just moisturize well yeah well mel has been living in the sun he's been living a hard life and it's written on his skin and it's it's wonderful because he carries what i think 
he carries the film really I and mean, there's a strange disconnect between him and the rest of the film it feels like the rest of the film hasn't quite caught up to where Mel Gibson is in terms of the action in terms of the drama it feels like he's been sort of taken from another film from an earlier area and plopped into this well, I thought it was like a Luc Besson 90s this film. Is, that was exactly... When I was watching it, I didn't realise it was a French director and it's like, this is 90s French action film. This is the most, this is the most French action film I've seen not sent in France, not in the 90s um, and not in French. Like, I kind of intuitively knew straight away that this was a French film. It's just, there's a very distinct kind of French action film and this was all of that. And the slight sepia look tone to it as well. Mm-hmm. You've seen a lot of European action films kind as well. post-Lucky Luke aesthetic. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, look, I, I actually on the whole quite enjoyed th- 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 this film, um, but I, I agree Gibson stands out uh, like, like a mile. I mean, he's the reason to see this film, and he kind of plays a character I think takes on board a bit of his off-screen baggage as well. Oh, I was really interested. Well, I thought sorry, that, that kind was... of. I mean, the, the, the character is yeah. identified as 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 a bit racist yep. who 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 needs to be Ex-Nazi, who needs to be recovering alcoholic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, he's he's a man with a shameful, shameful past. Um, at the complete end of his tether, I mean, he, he's bottomed out completely in this film. There's like, a, is there a domestic violence reference in there somewhere? I think there is. Yeah, well, there's like, that sense played with his um, domestic violence, just that he was a dick. Testing yeah. relationship with his ex-wife played yeah. through a phone conversation or two. There's a lot of, I mean, the there's daughter. a lot of lines. I think it's a fascinating film for him to have chosen to do precisely on that front. Um, and I, I was in that state, that sort of position watching this, Josh, that you pointed in that I really forgot how magnetic Gibson is on film. He's certainly not. You know, as far as his uh, public persona goes, he's not one of my favourite people. But um, you really do get drawn into him. You really forget what it's like to watch Mel Gibson on screen. And he does comedy and as well as, you know, just, that's sardonic. Just so engaging. Yeah. Like, I really... It's been so long. And then he sort of... He pulls you in. And then there's this, oh, look, he used to be a Nazi. And, oh, look, and, oh, look, it's Mad Max. And it's like, wow, he's really... This is a very deliberate decision on his part to take on a role that really touches on all of these different things it's a calculated redemption film for him i I was going to say and you know who knew a mel gibson film about forgiveness and redemption and guilt who knew get the gringo had a similar effect on me too i mean this was is that the one that was four years ago now that's what i was thinking of yeah yeah yeah. and he's again he owns that film and it was that thing of that sense of loss of maybe the 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 stuff that's gone on outside of the screen has kind of robbed us of, of, of performances because he wasn't the bankable actor that he was because of that off-screen baggage. A bit like kind of the Tom Cruise factor in those I was articles. About to mention Tom Cruise, and especially the character he played in Edge of Tomorrow, yeah. who is a bit of a dick, who has risen to the top through good looks and no actual effort. I mean, I think both these men in both these films have very deliberately picked films that don't make them look good at the start of the film anyway, but by the end we're on their side. He's a, very- a hint of self-awareness, I think. Yeah. It's not even a hint, really. I mean, it's kind of... It's so upfront that, that I, I think it's canny casting. I, don't, I mean, it's like mm. Mickey Rourke and The Wrestler. Those roles, yeah, you get that example. sense they could not have been cast in any other way because the, yeah, the, the, the baggage that that character, that fictional character brings to the screen is kind of inseparable from the actor itself. But look, uh, otherwise, I gather you weren't a fan. I still really in, enjoyed this film, although the, what I will say about it is, look, it, it's, re- it's a really pulpy kind of thriller with more the promise of actual action than any real action. And that's part of the problem. It sort of got to the big final climactic scene and I realised, oh, no, this is it. Mm. I I thought there was going to be half an hour more of of film to go and I was actually, you know, my expectations were really pumped up by this great pulpy thriller, in my mind anyway, that I was a little bit let down that it didn't sort of end with more of a bang. I didn't feel much of a connection between Erin... I'm not sure what the actor's name is, who played the daughter, Erin... She's so memorable. Oh, gosh. Um, I really... I think that this film really, really 
really needed to rely on the relationship between yep. father and daughter characters, and and her performance was very, very midday television. Erin Moriarty—that's a hell of a name. Yeah, it really. I mean, it just ended up being. I mean, maybe it's because she was up against Gibson. I don't know, but I, think I mean, it was very lopsided. Um, the, 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 there's weaknesses in the script that she certainly can't overcome, but the performance itself is really weak, and it doesn't quite gel from the start. And when you have a, a narrative that relies on this mo- emotional premise of the father who's been missing, had this missing daughter for years and years, and she suddenly reemerges into his life, and it happens so quickly and conveniently without any sense of trauma or baggage coming up. Um, that the whole f- that that emotional connection, I think the the climax probably needed to rely on, isn't there, and that's what I felt yep. lacked that dramatic urgency pushing into that final stage of the film. What had more of a spark for me was um, William H Macy, his character, who I think again was really grossly underutilized. Mm. I think that, and I, obviously that comes from the book. I think that the guy that wrote this also wrote the Top Gun two <laughs> sequel that's coming up. Is that a thing? Really? I don't know whether I've, I I haven't had a lot of sleep. I don't know whether <laughs> I'm imagining this. Um, I mean, it, I, we've, we've, we've all dreamed that. <laughs> <laughs> it's something I've There's been for. variations of the Top Gun I, two script floating around for years. I, I think, think I think that he's behind it. I think it's the same guy. Right. Well, no, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say I'm absolutely positive, but I. Th- I, this is ringing some kind of... I remember the one, one incarnation was Maverick. This is getting off topic, but Maverick is going to be the flight instructor now. It's that kind of paternal, like, new wave, new generation of Top Guns. No, you're right. Wow. Sorry, it's been announced. Top Gun 2 has been announced, and this is the same writer who will be potentially doing that film. I feel like I should issue a public apology for having raised this subject at all. <laughs> I'm excited. I'm cancel the rest of the show. Let's just talk about Top Gun. Um, I have taken your breath away. I didn't mind her. I, I, I think she was a fairly... I mean, she, she looked good in camera. She was a fairly generic, dishevelled teenager without being too real. I mean, you know, this was... I didn't for a minute believe this was seriously a, a homeless teenager with a with a drug and alcohol problem. Yeah, she, that was she, the problem. She looks about 40. She was very I mean, kind of <laughs> catwalk look, yeah, looking. Yeah, yeah. Um, I kind of took that in my stride as just part of the pulpy genre stuff, um, which is why I was kind of a bit disappointed the film didn't go more ultra-violent and, and, and crazy. It sort of was more or less a respectable just film. Just em- embrace that trashiness. I mean, I would I have loved trash, to have seen yeah. more of a... Uh, skittish performance. Somebody like Juno Temple, who's probably yeah. too old for it now as well, but somebody a little more skittish. I she mean, should have got Lindsay, Lindsay Lohan to do it. <laughs> that, would, no, <laughs> that, would that would have been amazing. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, you have this very meta amazing. performance by Gibson. It would have yeah. actually been a perfect combination. Bridget Fonda. That's, I mean, that's kind of what I was thinking of when I was watching it. Things like The Assassin. Yeah, I think it and really that had a real a emotional strong, core. Yeah. I think it really needed a, a strong presence in the daughter character that really was was absent for me and me look as Brie I said Larson, Macy she would have been great we yeah. should just recast all films after, <laughs> after they've been made <laughs> who do you want to be in Top Gun 2 <laughs> <laughs> oh don't get me started as long as Val Kilmer's doing great I want an ageing Tom Skerritt in a kind of a you know a Obi-Wan Kenobi type ghostly presence <sighs> role you want an ageing Tom Skerritt in everything everything I know yeah. can we I'm going to give her, I'm gonna bring it back to Bloodfather. <laughs> Bloodfather. I like Michael Parks as well, as, as Preacher, yep. Gibson's ex-Nazi buddy. And I really like that. I mean, Michael Parks, for some reason, has just appeared in Kevin Smith films of late, and he went through yeah. a phase of being a Tarantino fan as well. Um, but he's, he's really, he's a nasty presence in this film that's not overplayed. I Whoever quite, played his wife was brilliant too. Yeah, I don't know she who was that was. She was great. It's very small character. She, she just... She has played a couple of really nasty roles. Kicked a hole roles. in it. Yeah, she was brilliant. 
and I like how Gibson encounters his old kind of white trash clan and and realizes they're a bunch of dicks mm. and and that you know the people who really did have his back are, are many of the guys he met in prison who happened to be Mexican as well. And I there think- was really beautiful energy. Yeah. in those scenes when it was him going back to either people that he knew from Alcoholics Anonymous or people that he met in prison. That was where the real energy of this film was. And I think that there was something in those interactions that tr- that really transcended. That's where the potential for this film really lay, like of, of kind of doing something a bit, a bit, almost doing like a meta action film. Yeah, um, I, it's so. this was so tantalisingly close to being a film I really loved. I yeah. feel exactly the same way. Yeah. I enjoyed watching it. I still really it. enjoyed like, it. Yeah, no, yeah, I, like I got it. to the end and, I mean, the last line, this has to go down as one of my least favourite last lines in a film. And a re- not, Both of you were looking No, nah, I don't know. Yeah, no, I can't it was, remember it. You can't I, say I can't it. say it on air. But <laughs> you, well, yeah, no, I'm it was, it was forgettable. I mean, it was, it was, a, it was a, a kind of brief monologue that was oh, building oh, up yeah, and then no, that the coda, screen again, the, yeah the screen the unnecessary went black coda. And it'd be like the shallows unnecessary coders you don't need them no. I, oh, I, do, I do know what you're talking about yeah, now I yeah, thought yeah. It, was, um, it detracted didn't it yeah but it was like oh that Mel Gibson we should, like the wet yeah. Mel Gibson the, yeah. The, the, yeah we should mention just on Mel Gibson that we're going to see more of him because Hacksaw Ridge which I think he's directing as well from memory has yeah. been some pretty positive buzz from S- Overseas the film that Andrew Garfield is the lead in, and it's had tremendous reviews. The, the buzz from overseas has been really strong. So I think Gibson is, you know, I, I feel like Gibson's ready for a big comeback, and I, I don't think it's a coincidence that this film has come out before, you know, he, he's his next big directorial project. That makes sense because it's almost like a, a kind of counteracting the attacks. It's like, oh, but I made this film where I tackle. Yeah, all I, of this I'm stuff. self-aware that I yeah, used to be a dick. Yep. Now I'm redeemed. I have died for our sins. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I, <laughs> nice, did, I, did really, yeah. I did really like his Gibson's performance in this film, that. but I, I don't know if I quite buy that yet, Mel. You've crucified me and I'm back. Yeah, we've still yeah. got to do some work, Mel. <laughs> so, you and I have got some things to work out. I'm happy to keep watching him. <laughs> I really am, but I'll feel a, b- a bit bad about it. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. My Scientology Movie is a feature film presented by the popular broadcaster and journalist Louis Thoreau, who is best known for his television documentary series, where he often immerses himself in subcultures and situations that are provocative and confronting. As the title suggests, this is Thoreau's film about the Church of Scientology. My Scientology Movie covers a lot of similar ground to Alex Gibney's Going Clear, Scientology and the Prison of Belief, which we discussed last year. But I guess the two main things that stand out in Thoreau's film are the sequences where he casts and then reenacts incidents that allegedly happened in the church under the supervision of... Uh, the reenactments are under the supervision of former senior church official Mark Rathbun, who we should say the church discredits. Um, and there's also various scenes in the film with Thoreau having very awkward encounters with people who aren't happy with him making this film. Now, while this is very much Thoreau's film, we should mention that it is directed by John Dower, whose most notable credit up until now is his 2003 documentary Live Forever about Britpop in the 1990s. <laughs> but I don't see any connection beyond that. Uh, what I'm going to ask you folks is, given Alex Gibney's Scientology film came out really not that long ago at all, how does this compare or even possibly complement and does Thoreau's shtick assist with exploring this subject matter? This was my first experience with Louis Thoreau. I, I knew of him, but this is the first time that I had actually sort of sat down and spent any time with him. 
And to be blunt... I, same, actually, before you go on. I was yeah. aware of who he was, but I'd nev- I've never watched any of his television specials in full. And I've watched most of them. Okay, anyway, let's finish I, that and then I'll sorry, to, to be blunt, I, I hear a bombshell happening. I just thought he was a terminal bellend. He committed... <laughs> he, he has, to his credit, he has accomplished what I thought was impossible in that he's made a film about Scientology that has made me sympathetic to Scientology. I didn't think this was possible, and yet here we are. I, I just thought he was... At best, I would say this is a wannabe posh Michael Moore, and I'm not a Michael Moore fan at the best of times. I can't believe that that's Louis Thoreau. After all that I've heard about him, I was genuinely gobsmacked that that's what... I mean, this was... I struggled. I mean, this really... This felt more like Louis... It felt more about Louis Thoreau than it did Scientology. Um, Certainly after the Gibney, it felt redundant at best. There was nothing that I already didn't know except for the fact that I thought that... (laughs) Louis Thoreau was a terminal bellend. <laughs> I'm done. Mic drop. I'm out. Um, thank you for the expression <laughs> bellend, which is one I've always adored and never reused much. I'm, I'm glad it's made its way into Plato's Cave uh, terminology. Um, uh, look, yeah, let's start with Thoreau first before we talk about Scientology and what and his take on Scientology, because as someone who's watched a lot of Louis Thoreau, I've probably seen most of his TV specials, um, read one of his books. I've, which is going to sound kind of curious because despite having watched so much of him, I am still bewildered by his appeal. I'm actually not quite sure how he's managed to achieve the status and the reputation he has because he comes off as an unprofessional student documentarian. I mean, that's kind of his persona. I think it might be his persona. Like, that's his shtick that maybe he's taken to approach it. And I've been pondering why is it? Why is this persona sort of um, managed to get him this far to now to the point that he's released a feature film. And I think part of it is that the um, the types of subjects that he often interrogates, whether they're pedophiles, Nazis, fascists, you know, the the, the crazed... Um, the the Westboro Church. West, I was about to say, yeah, yeah the West Baptist Church. Um, I think there's something about that persona that come, that is deliberately unprofessional and, and disarming because you come off as someone who could be potentially be sympathetic to your court. So he becomes almost like a cipher, whereas if you are a professional journalist and you are approaching a subject matter, I think often subjects like that have in their mind a sense that you're already going to be out to get them. And I think often what makes sometimes his shows watchable, his TV shows, is that they start to try and bend them to their politics or their will or their ideology. I'm not sure that that approach works in in this case, though, and I think part of it is because he actually doesn't have access to people from the church in the church now. His only real sort of subject matter that he he has to sort of latch onto is that Rathbun figure, who is a conflicted figure, and but again, again, throw kind of edges towards trying to point out the kind of contradictions of someone who was responsible by his own admission for a lot of pretty nasty stuff while he was in the church, but isn't able or doesn't have the skill in terms of his. Um, documentary or is is, uh, interviewing to actually tease that out. In fact, the only couple of times it ends up in either protracted silences or abuse when Rathburn sort of turns on him and calls him all all kinds of things. So there's something about the Thoreau persona in this which is different, I think, to his television work. Yeah, I did... Look, I'm no complete novice. I've, I've watched. I've never watched a TV show in full, but I've watched bits and pieces, and I sort of get the idea. He really likes those awkward confrontations, and he puts himself in some fairly extreme situations with some very fringe people. and And I think he was trying to do that. But the the, the problem with doing that with Scientologists is they're not going to play ball with with this at all. They they, they don't. 
they don't engage. Um, and, and, you know, everything about their church is highly, you know, it's all alleged because they, they do, they contradict everything that people speaking out against them say. So, you know, he doesn't get to, to bait them like he may have done in other situations. And I, I did feel very conscious of the fact that so many scenes in this film were put there just so he could say something and get a stony silence. Like, it felt like too many moments were done as stunts. Yes, and absolutely. It's not quite as extreme as a Michael Moore film, but I, I have become really annoyed at this sort of style of guerrilla documentary filmmaking that has happened since Bowling for Columbine, where these people pretend they're being reasonable with trying to get an interview from somebody who they know is really doesn't want to speak them for whatever re- speak to them for whatever reason and this is this annoying excuse me sir i just want to ask you a question why are you closing the door in my face why are you running away and it's like stop pretending you dick you know this person <laughs> yes. doesn't want to talk to you yeah. and I, I it was cute at first back when we saw bowling for columbine mm-hmm. but i find it really grating now i feel exactly the same i was thinking when i was watching this it felt like a uh, punked era ashton kutcher had crashed the gibney documentary that, I mean, there's this whole thing about nice. a road. Who yep. owns a road? And it's just like, this is not about Scientology. This is about you being posturing. This is about you. I mean, the name My Scientology Movie, it, the, it's in the title. It's about Louis Thoreau. It's a well, Louis... It's not... There's nothing that I learned about Louis Thoreau from this. And I've said that I'm not really that big a fan of Michael Moore, but the dude earned his stripes. You know, yeah, you go back yeah. to that early Michael Moore stuff. Is it the People's Republic of Television? All of that. The awful truth. Yeah, like yeah. his early... I mean, you know... It, uh, Roger and me, Roger you know, and like me, yeah, I'm, I'm not a fan of his work, especially his more recent work by a long shot. But I get that he earned the right to what he does, if that makes but, sense. And even he's abandoned this kind of confrontational yeah. stunt. I mean, yeah. his last film, um, Where to Invade Next, doesn't yep. have any of that. Yep. So even he's let it go. Um, and look, it's especially hard because the confrontations are with people who, who don't give him anything. Like, we, we, we don't even have any proof that the people he confronts in this film are from the Church of Scientology. We, we, we suspect they are, and it's. It's likely, but we don't know for sure. And I think he just doesn't have any material to work with. And I think it's taking it to the big screen. Maybe it's by doing that he is going to reach a different audience and it's not people that have drunk the Louis Thoreau cold aid, uh, cold aid, Kool-Aid like me. I mean, the only thing I really knew about this going in, about this guy going in was his A, that he was a big deal and people really liked him and B, that he has an, an extremely attractive cousin in the shape of Justin Thoreau. That was my knowledge of Louis Thoreau going really in. Are they really cousins? Totes, I had no idea. Wow. Totes cousins. Yeah, Justin Thoreau is hot. We can just talk about Justin Thoreau. Mm-hmm. The, 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 Charlie's uh, Angels. Mulholland Drive. Mulholland Drive and Charlie's Angels oh, too. Yeah, that, Inland, Empire, oh, Inland Empire. We have derailed Inland. the conversation. I was going to say, <laughs> Justin Thoreau's My Scientology movie, I will kickstart the shit out of that. Justin Thoreau in Top Gun 2 oh, playing God. the Maverick part. It's writing itself, people. There we go. <laughs> At that scene, it was Mr. Craig, if you're listening. Tom Skerritt. Like. <laughs> um, we, the one yes. thing I did want to mention about this docker, which is an approach that he seems to have attempted to adopt, although to my point of view it's... It feels a little redundant, and I'm not quite sure if he follows through on it. Is to stage reenactments of certain either key alleged moments that had, that had taken place within the boundaries of Scientology, or uh, press conferences, or and like he it, to the point where he attempts to cast, or he does cast someone to play David Miscavige. He pl- he casts someone to play Tom Cruise. This idea of the reenactments feels like a kind of a, a again a stunt. I think is a really good mm. good term to use, but it doesn't seem to have any effect. At least not that's integrated into the structure of the documentary. Not certainly not in the way of say the act of killing, where it's about 
you know, presenting or putting the, the subjects through the experience again or trying to kind of draw a line between, in, in that case, you know, the violence of on-screen cinema or genre cinema and the violence of the, the real world. This feels like a, a gimmick that doesn't kind of have a point. I think you could, you could attempt to kind of extract you know, extrapolate some kind of academic reading of, you know, Scientology as something linked to Hollywood, as something performance or something that we can't know so that by using the, the form of reenactment, he's somehow getting at that. You've but just I, launched a thousand undergraduate honours theses. But I, I don't think it's in the documentary. I, I think, think Gibney did that better. I think he did I too. Think so too. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and I don't think there's any kind of thesis where he uses that, that approach, the, the reenactment approach, to any real effect. It, it's weird. I, I kind of enjoyed watching this film, but it really felt superficial. And, and um, I think the moment I realised that is when they were casting both David Miscavige and Tom Cruise and I just thought I'm enjoying watching all these actors do impersonations and I thought and that's it that's the enjoyment here it's actually telling us nothing mm. especially the Tom Cruise stuff is is really redundant to the point he's trying to trying to get across and look and there is ultimately a point to this film that I think is different to the sentiment you got in Alex Gibney I mean I think his focus is more on the influence that David Miscavige has allegedly had over the church and how that is allegedly maybe not what the church was intended to be like um but again it feels very tacked on i just want to also quickly mention the whole stuff with mark rathburn who is a, who is an amazing subject so this is the guy who used to be very senior in the church the, ter- the church now discredit him and say everything he says are lies but what he says is also said by many other people um it, you know there is a moment where Mark really explodes at Louis Thoreau and says, you know, how dare you ask me these questions? And i got to admit, at that moment, I actually felt a bit sorry for him because the context of when those questions were asked was pretty appalling. They were good questions to be asked at another point, but the timing does feel very calculated to make this man blow up. And I just thought that's... That's providing nothing of substance other than the spectacle of a man losing his temper. And it prevents us from getting an understanding of Rathburn's character. I think that was, yeah, again, this thing of that lack of professional or the or the whether it's deliberate or whether it's just you know unconscious seems to have that sense of you know you've we're, we're missing out the audience is missing out on actually getting an understanding that would have been possible if perhaps another interviewer had been in that moment that's exactly it whether it was conscious or not the only thing i really left this film with was a sense that louis thoreau is a kind of posh frat boy I mean, just stunt after stunt after stunt. There was nothing in here about the subject that I found particularly revelatory or even presented in a particularly interesting manner. Um, And certainly on the back of the Gibney last year, it was just, uh, you know, why? Why do it now? You know, maybe if it came before the Gibney, then we'd have something a bit more concrete to talk about perhaps. But it almost felt like Gibney had done the hard yards. Like, yes, it is possible to go out there and do a feature-length film documentary on Scientology. Um, well, I think given the flat Gibney got from that, I mean, you know, yeah. that that attracted a lot of negative attention mm-hmm. towards Gibney. I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm just guessing and speculating that Thoreau thought this will probably be the most edgy group I've looked at yet, yeah. and the response is going to be out of control. So let's make this a feature film, and I think it's fallen flat. Like, yeah, I, don't, I think so. I, th- I, I don't think really there's been much kickback on it. It just, I mean, it's very weak. I just felt that this was a very, very weak film across the board weak research weak presence yeah. there's just no presence in it and he says I've, I've been living in LA for a year so maybe there's something and maybe this is still speculation <laughs> that leaving the BBC mm. where maybe the the producing and the kind of the scripting and the structure 
the oversight has been a bit more rigorous is suddenly absent and maybe he's trying to adapt his persona for an American market. I don't know. I mean, these, are, these are all just sort of speculations. It's but all alleged. We yeah. have been allegedly <laughs> discussing my Scientology movie. Um, you're listening to Plato's Cave. Allegedly. Three, triple R. The Secret Life of Pets is a 3D animated feature by Illumination Entertainment an animation production company owned by Universal Pictures that is best known for the Despicable Me franchise, which included Minions from last year. In The Secret Life of Pets, Max, voiced by Louis C.K., is a Jack Russell terrier whose life involves being pampered by his owner Mary, pining for her when she goes to work and hanging out with the other pets in uh, the Manhattan apartment building where they all live. Max's world is shattered when Mary brings home another dog, a large shaggy beast named Duke voiced by Eric Stone Street. But soon Max and Duke have to put aside their rivalry when another when after a run-in with a gang of stray cats they both end up collarless, lost and on the run. The Secret Life of Pets is directed by Yero Cheney and Chris Renald. Renald directed the Despicable Me films. Uh, both of them have various production design and animation credits to their name. I don't think we've done a kids' animation for a little while. What am I talking about? We did Kubo in the Two Strings not that long ago, but you well, guys we weren't didn't. here for that. Yeah. <laughs> what? Look, the Secret Life of Pets. Did you enjoy it? Did you see it with children? Well, this is the this is the I think where I need to start is on a very important point. I have can been start, told. Can you, sorry, can you just start with as a parent? <laughs> <laughs> I have. Sorry. One of you has to do a it because I can't. A young five-year-old I know has. Uh, in very in the strongest terms, made clear that this is the film of the year. Um, right. Even better, and I am I'm paraphrasing here, but even better than the Angry Birds movie, where they drink wee. Oh wow! So if, yeah. if you're five, that's quite a claim to make. And it's it is if you've seen the trailer for this film or some of the clips going around YouTube, there is a headbanging poodle. <laughs> that if you are five, is what I would call a life changing moment. Pretty funny kids, if you're in your late thirties. Kids like the <laughs> kids and late thirties people like the he- Leonard, the head banging poodle. So I don't know. I mean, I think a five year old is probably more the audience than I, the intended audience than than I was for this. I thought it was all right. It's okay. I'm as a parent. <laughs> Look, I, yeah, as a parent. Um, <laughs> I, I just realised it's been a while. I tend to be pretty favourable when we discuss films, even if I don't particularly like something I still overall have time for it but this is the first film in a long time I really had no time for I, oh, I bring it on yes yeah, cold blood I, I didn't like this at all well, no, are you on. actually taking on a five year old on I'm going to take on cool. all the five year olds <laughs> come down to they're going to win they're going to win um, <laughs> and it's not because there's anything particularly wrong with it although there are issues I think we will talk about I just found this such a bland nothing yeah. film and I, I find this kind of kids entertainment bordering on insulting I think children deserve better than stuff this vacuous and it makes me sad to hear that kids do love it and they get into it because uh, because it, it, it's just kids like today. yeah but you know <laughs> but, well, kids also love eating fast food it's that kind of thing where it, it's a really horrible instant gratification of of nothingness and there's just such better film that is made for young people and it's you know i think i've mentioned once or twice before that my day job includes programming films for children and young adults and so much of it doesn't even get to australia and it's just frustrating to watch stuff like this and it's just so empty this is a really by the numbers kind of pick but the numbers don't really kind of 
join up. I mean, in fact, I was going to I was going to start by taking an academic route and and saying that this film really is about kind of stymieing political revolutionary activity in the favor in favor of sort of domesticated status quo i mean i think you could read that kind of politics and ideology into it maybe let's put that to one side for one moment the film itself is a pastiche of the toy story trilogy i mean yeah. it really is yeah, it, it is. opens with a character who's got an established relationship to his owner like woody in the toy story films the rival comes in like buzz lightyear in this case it's a dog one tries to overthrow the other to restore the balance. They get lost, and the, the, the sort of so the film basically moves through Toy Story one through two through to the to the third one, where now that the, the pair have formed an unlikely unlikely union and has to sort of fight off against a a gang or, or a horde of evil animals, which is kind of what happens in the the end of the. Th- Toy Story 3, but it has no emotional core for me. I, I sort of enjoyed moments of this on a really superficial level. I just like hearing Louis C.K. talk. I could listen to him endlessly in whatever form that he was sort of voicing. But I, I think this film felt like a kind of a, a film by committee, a film where a studio executive says, what's worked in the past? Let's just kind of throw all these sort of you know uh, tropes into a mixing bowl with some cute voices, some some pretty sort of animation. But this is certainly not aiming for the the heights of like a Toy Story franchise. This feels kind of on the level of like a Cars Two or a sort of a Planes. It is an aeroplane film. I think it's yeah. the it's the kind of movie that you give give a kid to watch on an iPad on an aeroplane, like just to kind of keep them quiet for an hour and a half, or or somebody in their late thirties, uh, you know, depending <laughs> depending where well, you're at. The headbanging poodle is hilarious, but you yeah. see that in the trailer, and that's by far the funniest moment in the and film. And it's right at the start of the film. I, and I, they do nothing with it. They're repeated a few times. Two things I really liked is Albert Brooks. Anything that brings Albert Brooks back into my life is always important. The wonderful Albert Brooks. I think most people know from The Simpsons. He won an Oscar for broadcast news and is a, an extraordinary director in Taxi his own driver. right. Yeah, like yeah, oh, that thing too, yeah. yeah. Just that little film. That little film. <laughs> um, amazing, amazing man and he's wonderful in this. He's the dog in the basket. I can't even remember I the character. I thought that was, was Dana Carvey. Yeah, oh, is that well, who was? Yeah, Dana Carvey Brooks doing is the uh, eagle. Old man Brooks voice. is the eagle. Yeah. You're right. I did get them mixed up. Dana Carvey is, I'm happy to have him back in my Absolutely, life. Absolutely, yeah. And I, I watched this film just as this whole weird Greece conspiracy theory <sighs> has been doing the rounds. Have you been... This idea that Sandy was all, always dead or something like this, that the film... Might make me enjoy Greece if that's um, the case. Yeah. It, Can they resurrect Greece too? But I, that was, I was reading about that on the day that I saw this and they do this really quite beautiful uh, Busby Berkeley sausage dog uh, dogs having a, a fantasy about sausages to a song from Greece. That the was last my, song. Yeah. I really like I could have done with an hour and a half of just that. That was my favourite sequence dogs of the Dogs daydreaming about down. sausages. Yeah. I thought it was really beautiful. It got a bit pink elephants from Dumbo. Yeah, sequence, it was, it was quite, quite lovely. More hallucinogenic um, and vague drug references in kids' films. You know, it's great stuff. <laughs> I could sequence... have done with more of that. Um, and obviously, you know, you can, I mean, it felt very like, much like a vignette, like that they kind yeah. of just wheeled some people in to do that sequence then wheeled them back out. But, but I think that, that sums up the whole film. There was a film. spark there. I mean, there was... That was the one moment yeah. that there was a real spark. But it, it's a bunch of little moments chopped up and placed next to each other with no real sense of character arc or development. I mean, that that what works so beautifully in the Toy Story films, you know, that dy- dynamic between the rival couple is there's real um, character development for yeah. them to come together as friends. In this film, they're rivals. They're horrible to each other. The second they're put in an extreme dangerous situation, now they're best friends looking after each other's back. And you never, you never buy it. I mean, the other film, this felt like... a 
a horrible kind of pales in comparison to is the Shaun the Sheep movie, which also has this story of trying to rescue animals from from the pound. And and one thing that bugged me this in this film, and I, I, I mentioned this when we talked about Finding Dory, is very quickly the animals broke with reality about in terms of how an animal would, would move around the space of the city, like. It is completely fantasy and, and ridiculous. And and I think that diluted the potential for humour. Because it's funny when you watch the animals doing animal-y things or That's exaggerated exactly animal-y things. When that, the opening uh, credit sequence, um, I don't even think it's the opening credit sequence. The sequence at the start, it's all online, yeah. so I don't think this is a spoiler. But it's just, it just shows pets in their own home and there's a sausage dog underneath a, a mix master, yeah, like yeah. a blender, that is just the most beautiful. And that's quite funny. Just beautiful, really simple gestures. Yeah. If you've ever met a sausage dog, it's exactly how they move and how they respond. And it's just it's, it's gorgeous animation. Like it's this beautiful, nuanced, clever mm. animation. And it's connected to reality. It, has yeah. the, it, it treads that fine line between maybe this is how what, what animals do when humans aren't around. It's believable exaggeration, but when you've got animals being thrown into the air and kind of sailing down clotheslines and that kind of thing, it, 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 it too much broke from the kind of animal movements. Again, Shaun the Sheep's a really good example of how they go into exaggerated, surreal um, sequences, but incorporating how the animal would move, and done with such so much better command and of such the humor, joy. Look, the, I think the physical Sean, comedy I think is Sean so the good Sheep, in that film. Sean the Sheep is such a great reference. Um, also, in terms of the where this film fits into its relationship to other films, mm. so the Sean the Sean the Sheep film is such a loving homage to Buster Keaton, yep. Harold Lloyd, all of those old silent films, and it's a great film to see with very young children who haven't got a full grasp of language yet because they're not excluded from the film because it's all gesture and action. Um, whereas this film, it's it doesn't... There's no... There's a couple of minion gags, which is obviously like a kind of cross-branding thing, but there's no reference to, really to Toy Story. It's not it's not acknowledging that it's kind of playing on these things that it knows that we know. No. There's weird references to the warriors in there and, oh. and you know, these, these homicidal animals who talk about how they want to kill humans and then that guy is just left alone. It goes nowhere. It's I, liked, like... I like this a lot more than <laughs> Zootopia. Zootopia left me furious... Um, because I think that's a messed up film. This one, I just, I don't, I saw this three days ago and I can barely remember anything about it except for Leonard the moshing (laughs) dog and the the sausage sequence. I think Zootopia is a better crafted film. I I appreciate why you disliked it, but um, yeah. Yeah. Too many characters, that's the other thing. Yeah, Yeah, that's a big problem with children's films, I think. And that's, I think, and I don't think the Minions really gets, um, you know, the the Despicable Me and Minions films, but that's where they get it right. They don't, they really develop those characters and I think that's why kids connect to them. That's why Toy Story worked because you had such a clearly defined core group of characters. Oh, well, we ended on a dud note. <laughs> Funny show, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Who let that dog out? You, we, you've been listening to Plato's Cave. We discussed Blood Father. That's on general release courtesy of Icon Films. My Scientology movie is on limited release courtesy of Man Man Entertainment. The Secret Life of Pets is on general release courtesy of Universal Pictures. You've been listening to myself, Thomas Caldwell, with Josh Nelson, Alexandra, Helen, Nicholas. Do keep listening to Triple R, Cockalega for local and or general with Jason Moore. This has been a podcast from Free Triple R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.